Welcome to Word in the World Language Podcast. I'm speaking today with John Coward. John has taught high school Spanish and ESL in inner city Memphis for 10 years. And he's now an assistant principal of a Title I high school in Texas. John has also led many PD sessions and has presented in several conferences on the topic of classroom management. So our topic today on the podcast is, why so fragile? Equity, justice, and deconstructing the white lens. So welcome, John, to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad you could be here. So first, let me just say that I believe that it's up to us, white individuals, to do the heavy lifting and dismantling systemic racism. It's our job to have these tough conversations at school, at home, in the workplace, or wherever, because people of color do not owe us any explanations about race and white supremacy. I just wanted to jump in there and, and say that first and foremost. I think the work is, is the responsibility is ours. What, what do you think, John? You think it is before we get into this question here? Yeah, I think that's a really great way to frame the conversation um, because just a little behind the scenes, when you first asked me about this topic, my first thought was, you know, we should really talk to a person of color about this. Um, but, but that's not the topic. The topic is teaching while white and it is up to white people, um, specifically, you know, white people who teach uh, children of color to have these conversations and to own this work and not um, not pass off the, the hard work and the hard conversations to someone else. So I appreciate you doing this. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate you being here. So that leads directly into the first question, which is, what does it mean to teach, in our case, um, language? Um, you are an AP now, and I still teach Spanish in high school level. So what does it mean to teach while white? How would you define that in the context of our topic? And what does it mean in terms of closing the achievement gap or what I like to refer to as the opportunity gap? Yeah, so, man, there's a million different ways you could, you could attack this question. What does it mean to teach while white, specifically like while teaching a language? Um, well, first, as as teaching as a white guy who teaches predominantly children of color in, in Memphis, I taught, I think 99% of my students were African American. And now I'm at a, um, like a 97% Hispanic Latino community. And what that means, uh, is one, we have to acknowledge the fact that as, as teachers standing in front of these children, both as, an authoritarian figure, but also as a, a mentor and uh, someone who is trying to shape these children's futures, um, we have to understand what our biases are, what our blind spots are uh, when it comes to um, our privilege. Because if, if you're white, you have privilege. And it took me it took me several years of, of thinking that had it all figured out before I started to learn that I didn't before I started to understand that I do have these blind spots and I do have these tendencies that are deeply in like in rooted in my, in, in my brain. 
Um, a couple examples. So whenever we talked, so I taught high school kids and I always approached, um, my work as like, you know, I'm going to help you get educated so that you can go to college and have a better life than you have now. And even that phrase is embedded and kind of rooted in the idea that our children don't have good lives or that our children uh, need to escape their community or that they need to use education as a ticket out. And that is a horrible blind spot to have. Uh, instead of approaching the work, which took me a couple of years to, to figure out that our communities are rich in, in culture and values and we should be promoting students to get educated so that they can be the drivers of change for their community and make their communities a better place. Yeah, I, I think I'm just it's being aware of that implicit bias, right? Those things that we may not think of as as racist on the surface, you know, when we're dealing with our whiteness and especially as we teach in front of uh, students of color, mm -hmm. as as uh, as you mentioned. Right. So I think that's the challenge. No, it's like it never mm -hmm. really ends um, that this journey of self-awareness as white teachers, mm -hmm. especially in these spaces, in these inner city schools. Um, it's it can sometimes be um, difficult to be self-aware. Um, yeah. Another thing that that's very real. Uh, and there's a great book called like for white folks who teach in the in the hood or something like that. Oh my God, I love that um, book. Um, our listeners need to go buy that yes. book. Christopher Emden, yeah, right? I actually got. You had the opportunity to see him recently, right? He came and spoke to our school summit to a group. He'll be at Axel. Yeah, um, which was very brave for an organization like the one I work for to invite him in. But it was very needed. And, and I think one thing he said that really resonated with me in his speech and all, and in his book, um, was the concept of the white savior. And how there's a lot of uh, organizations that that or you know, alternative licensing programs that'll get um, that that'll place recent college graduates or or career changers into these really challenging underfunded schools, and a lot of a lot of people come in with this idea of like I'm going to save these children's lives. I'm going to directly like you know, impact the way they think of the future. And again, that implies that their lives need saving in the first place, which they don't. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I worked with the principal my, my first year teaching and I was really struggling with this. I was like, I was 21, fresh out of college. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to change all these kids' lives and blah, blah, blah. And I was getting so frustrated that, that, that they wasn't happening. My principal, a man named Curtis Weathers, 6'6", six, six, former Cleveland Browns linebacker, great guy. He just sat me down. He said, John, I didn't hire you to save anyone's life. I hired you to be a Spanish teacher. I'd be a really, really good Spanish teacher and then go back to business because that's, that's what you're here to do. And that really resonated with me. And then from there, it just became, a you know, if, if you are standing in front of your children, believing in the best in them and providing good, engaging uh, lessons for them, and then you're doing a good job for them. If you are doing that and you are also aware of your racist biases and your privilege, uh, then you're doing an even better job for them. Absolutely. That reminds me of a quote from a book um, that I read from Jamila Lyscott, Black Appetite, White Food. 
which mm-hmm. is a good follow-up to the book, uh, White Fragility, that I'm sure a lot of our listeners may or may not be aware of. If you've read that book or in the process, um, follow it with Jamila Lyscott's book. Um, and she yeah. says, we always talk about giving students a voice. Guess what? They already have a voice. All we can do is make a space for those voices, right? So that kind of that kind of leads into my next question. So for you, John, um, as a Spanish teacher and now as a AP assistant principal, what what does yep. equity work look like yep. in your classroom, and how do you assure that voices that are typically marginalized are heard? You know, meaning as language teachers. How are students' voices, their lives, and their experiences reflected in your instruction? Or how, mm-hmm. in the sense, how were they since you're not actually a Spanish teacher? And how, do, how does that apply to you now as an assistant principal? Yeah. So if you – so I, I feel like I have, I have the easy answer in this one. I use comprehensible input, right? The, yep. the, the, the first part of the question, what does equity look like in your classroom? It looks like me – um, bringing in comprehensive input methods and using my students' lives and their and their personal experiences as the basis of my curriculum. Um, I went to a um, IFLT several years ago in Chattanooga, and Grant uh, Boulanger, how you pronounce his last name, Boulanger, <laughs> get, um, he gave this great um, presentation about equity and how CI is closing the um the gap between race and gender of how many students are persisting through world language three four and ap and he called the name of his session was inverting the pyramid and he looked at the at the number of students in world language one and two the bottom of the pyramid which is usually required for all students and getting into world language three and four as you get up the pyramid there's fewer and fewer students at the very very top of the pyramid he showed this, I forgot the number, but like the vast, vast, vast majority of students are white females who end up persisting through World Language 3.8 AP. And then he looked at the study after several years of, of uh, a district using CI and how the numbers are so much more equitable. How um, children of color, particularly boys of color, are will, will persist through a program because CI is so culturally adaptive to so many different uh, types of learners and also uh, ethnic backgrounds of students and their, and their culture. Um, my last full year of teaching, I had, a, I had a room of 20 AP Spanish students, all um, black and brown kids. Um, Amazing. And some of, them, I don't, some of them who had learning disabilities and – this was their only AP class they could ever take. Um, but it was because I started with them in Spanish one, two, three. I mean, CI evens the playing field. It takes away all of the educational privileges and biases that, you know, children who come from, you know, really privileged backgrounds just inherently have. You know, if you're in a traditional world language classroom, studying formulas, dehydrated sentences, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then the academic privileges that you bring with you, like if you're good in math and English and science because you've got a stable home life and you have parents who are really pushing you and reading to you, and then you bring those skills into school, you're ahead of everyone else. Well, we know that children from poverty don't have those things. So when they come to a Spanish classroom, 
if you're doing traditional methods, it's going to only increase the opportunity gap, shall we call it, the, the achievement gap. Versus if you're doing CI and doing it with fidelity based on the research and based on what we know about how the brain acquires languages, anyone can excel in this. And that's what I saw in, in, in my classrooms. And, that, and that's, as an assistant principal, is what I'm bringing to our school now is like 50% of our students require ESL services. And when I said, great, show me the ESL curriculum, show me what we're working with, it was a lot of phonics, a lot of studying, a lot of memorization. And yeah. so immediately I, I asked, well, how much, how much power do I have over this curriculum? And the answer was, well, we've never really had anyone take charge of this before. And I said, done. We're bringing in done. CI. We're, dying, we're bringing in CI Amazing. Throughout, throughout the building. Yeah. Amazing. That's I, you know, a personal testimony is, is CI does as I, you know, I teach in a, um, a title one school, inner city school. Um, and I, I can attest to that, that CI teaching with CI strategies does give your students voice because they are front and center of, of the language, at least in my classroom. Um, I, I'm not going to say, I'm going to go, you know, I'm not going to say that all CI classrooms, that type of voice is front and center, but in my classroom, in your yep. classroom, it was yep. front and center. And it does, uh, like Grant Boulanger said, it does, it does keep those students coming back time and time again, because they can acquire mm -hmm. the language. So that runs right directly into my next question about, um, with the successes you've had mm -hmm. as a teacher. Um, as a white male um, who's taught in urban school, tell us kind of what barriers uh, – we kind of touched on this at the beginning, like kind of what barriers mm -hmm. you faced, the challenges you had. You know, what was it like for you to navigate those spaces and overcome your own sort of implicit biases? Yeah, so kind of what I've already touched on, I think my career started off um, – I was very – um, like passionate about service work and I really looked at the job as a calling and that I was really coming into these you know the, the school and these poor children have never had anyone and I'm going to come and fix everything um, and the first barrier I faced with that was reality check like when you walk in the door and kids see right through you they see right through your um, your talk, and they, and they and they can, you know, kids, um, kids or, or people in general who come from um, generational poverty have just one of their greatest strengths as human beings is social intelligence. And kids, I, kids I taught in urban Memphis were some of the most socially intelligent children humans I've ever been around, and they read you. Absolutely in five minutes and they've got you pegged and they figured out. And so that was oh, yeah. challenging. It was challenging because they were used to teachers like me coming in, um, giving these grandiose speeches and then quitting after a couple of years to go teach in the suburbs. So they did not show a lot of respect. They did not buy in. They did not really invest themselves into my class those first couple of years. And that's what that, that goes back, not to interrupt you, but that goes back to what you were saying. Christopher Endham talked about that. Um, uh, white savior complex, yep. no, because a lot of teachers come into inner city schools with that white savior complex, and uh, and they they move on. Yeah, they move on because they can't make it past that test. Because they didn't save anybody. You know? <laughs> they didn't. They didn't save anybody. And 
you know, they couldn't, you know, the students test you. And there's a certain yeah. uh, sort of street smart yeah. that the honesty can, can uh, you know, I don't know what the word I, yeah. what I'm looking for is like, you can be tested in a way where your authenticity will come through or it will not come through your intentions, your true motivations will shine in those, in those spaces. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and then on the flip side, you know, once, once I focused on just, just be a, just be a damn good Spanish teacher, just make engaging lessons that your kids will care about and engage in. And, and once and once I started that and really focusing on that, um, then I mean, I mean, then kids just show up and they're like, okay, I want to learn Spanish, I really do. Oh, great! I see that you are teaching me Spanish. Great, this is fun. This is awesome. And then like connections get built that way, trust gets built that way. And then once you have a reputation, once you have a what either good or bad, it's really powerful. You know, when kids walk in the door year four and they're like, oh, yeah, you're the Spanish teacher. You've been here for a minute. Exactly. I've heard about you. You you taught my older cousin. You taught my older brother. Things get so much easier and then you can really engage with kids on a a much deeper level, like personally, because you're not like always worried about, wound up about delivering great lessons. You can kind of chill out for a little bit and like, and, and really, really dive in with them. The best thing I did later in my career was I adopted the the special student oh, strategy yeah. or the star student, yeah, whatever Bryce right yeah. calls it. Man, if I had known about that my first couple of years of teaching, life would have been so much easier. Um, but just to go back to the culture aspect of CI, you know, I just wrote this book about classroom management and I thought it was really great. And people were telling me it's really great. But then this one guy said, dude, you didn't talk about culture or equity or diversity at all. And that plays so much more into into like being able to manage a class and being able to make connections with students when you know, when you acknowledge that you have different cultural experiences and you try to learn and you come with a humble mindset, confident in what you know, willing to learn about what you don't know, kids will read that and they will figure it out and they will respect you um, just by doing those things. So, you know, um, a lot of times when we talk about uh, implicit bias and systemic racism and equity work and what it looks like in our classrooms. You know, a lot of times we're confronted with this thing called white fragility, right? Which is sort of, you could think of it as a, mm-hmm. a defensiveness, right? When, when you're confronted with like these, these implicit bias and this deep seated racism, um, how do you go about addressing that defensiveness, that white fragility, mm-hmm. Whether it's with coworkers, your friends, your administration, now that you're an admin, um, just talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, so I'll tell you a story. Um, a couple months ago, um, I was leaving Memphis to move to Austin, and I was having dinner with a friend who is uh, from Mexico. And we've been friends for years, and I always would try to practice my Spanish with this friend. And he would rarely ever respond to me in Spanish. And then we were, we were having a couple of adult beverages, and I finally just looked at him and I said, man, like, you never, like, respond to me in Spanish. You never practice with me. And he looked at me and he said, it's because, I mean, he said, 
it's a privilege to be white and to be able to speak Spanish. Oh my God. He said, when you speak Spanish, people look at you and say, oh my gosh, where did you learn? Where did you study? That's so cool. But when he speaks Spanish, it's, this is America. We speak English here, America. Do you even know English? (laughs) Go back to where you came from, right? That's so crazy, John. That is so true. So part of white fragility is is just acknowledging that you have those blind spots, acknowledging that I will never know what it's like to be a minority in this country, no matter how much I study it, no matter how much I live it. I like to think I'm woke, but just like little moments. This was three months ago, dude. I've been in this work for a decade. And so I think the old me would have put up all the defenses and, and, and I think the, 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 in the book, White Fragility, I read that years ago, but it's like white people always feel like they have their credential themselves. That's right. a phrase. That I do this. I have five black friends. I blah, 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 blah. And we, have, <laughs> yeah. we, have, we feel like we have yeah. to like credentials to prove that we're not racist. And, and I wish, and I wish people would, would dive more into the definition of racism and the definition of privilege. Because when I use these two words with, People outside of this work, they get, they laugh, they smirk, they say, well, everything's racist these days without understanding like what it actually means. Like privilege, all privilege means is that if something isn't a problem because it's not a problem to you personally, then that's privilege. You have the privilege of not worrying about that, that problem because it's not a problem to you. And that's a hard realization for a lot of people. You know, yeah. it kind of just slaps them in the face and they're just like taken back. But yeah. and it's okay. You can be taken back. But then the hard work, yeah. then the hard work begins at that, yeah. at that moment. You know, when you realize just because you have one black friend or one Hispanic friend, you're not yeah. racist. It's so much thinking, more like, than that. Yeah. And here I am thinking like, I speak Spanish. I live in South America. I live and breathe it. I can never be like, I know, every, I know all the struggles and I don't. You don't. And and my principal now is a Latino woman and the other assistant principal I work with is also a Latino woman. And they and they are teaching me a lot. They are teaching me a lot about this community, about this culture, things that I thought I had figured out and I don't. So I think white white fragility is just just understand what you don't know and strive to learn is how you overcome your white fragility. And sometimes just sit down, shut up, and listen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what we can do a lot of times. So, John, as you know, on my podcast, um, if you've listened to any of the other ones that I've recorded, I love to ask people about their journeys of becoming a language teacher. And in your instance, it's pretty interesting because you've gone from language teacher into administration. So Mm -hmm. if you'd like to speak briefly about, tell us, uh, our listeners, about your language journey. Yeah, um, I feel really lucky. So in college, I studied abroad randomly. I saw a flyer to study abroad in Chile, and I thought, I'll go to Chile and learn Spanish. I didn't know Spanish at the time. Um, but, I, but I had taken some classes. I knew a little bit, and I went for a year and studied abroad there, and it was awesome. While I was there, they needed an English teacher at one of the schools, and I said, sure, I know English. So I went and, and quote, caught English. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> um, it was really fun. It was really inspiring. And it's what made me want to become a language teacher. So when I came back to the States, 
I went to my college and said, yeah, I want to be a Spanish teacher because I know Spanish and I want to teach languages. It's really fun. And it just so happened that a woman named Shelly Thomas um, was the director of one of the graduate programs for all of the second language acquisition majors. Now, Shelly Thomas, uh, Dr. Shelly Thomas, was one of the first people ever to give a keynote speech as, 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 at what is now called IFLT, back when it was called TPRS Inc. She is a guru in CI, and she taught me everything. So I never taught with traditional methods. I've never taught anything besides CI. So I trained with her for a couple of years, taught in Nashville, and then moved to Memphis, um, and knew CI really well, knew TPR, TPRS, learned how to be a teacher through trial and error. Um, and then my last couple of years of teaching, I had, I had student teachers every year that I really enjoyed working with. And one of my uh, former student teachers, uh, Sarah Kirst, she's big on the IFLT groups, she went out, uh, taught her own school, um, and like I didn't get to see her teach for like four more years. And when I finally saw her teach in front of her kids, um, it was just it was really inspiring. Uh, she was a, she was a level five teacher, like district teacher of the teacher of the year, and it just hit me that you know she's also teaching in a Title One school with 150 kids who have no idea who I am. But because of the work that I did with her and the training that I, that I helped her with, she is now influencing a whole other group of kids that I've never even met and talked to. And that's what got me the itch to, to get into admin. I had had some really good administrators before and I'd had some really bad ones. And I thought, man, if, if, if we could just get a, a school full of really good uh, instructional coaches, assistant principals, whatever, um, then then we could we could make some some amazing things happen for a lot of children, and that and I, the desire to expand my my influence was born out of that. And then what brought me to Austin was uh, I got an email saying, "Hey, we need someone to do all those things, come help teachers, and also do it at a school where fifty percent of our kids can't speak English." And I thought, "Sign me up!" So here I am. Well, that's a good that's a good story, John. So. Um You'll be at um, the next conference that you'll be speaking at is uh, since you mentioned Grant Boulanger, right? Um, you'll be at CI Midwest this coming September, correct? I will be there. So tell us a little bit about your session. What are you going to be presenting on? What what those uh, teachers that'll be attending or those that may be thinking about attending? What what's your session about? Well, it was going to be my my typical classroom management session that. I've done before I did at IFLT last summer, I've done an online class on, um, but in, 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 in light of recent feedback I've gotten, I think I'm going to do that session, but I'm going to tweak it a little bit to make it, uh, to, to invite what we're talking about right now into that conversation. Um, how to, how to connect, how to have, um, a classroom that is, that's equitable, um, and that is not just um, say not just like a safe place, but like actively fights to dismantle systemic racism and, and bias. So that how do, I guess it's, I guess I'm going to call it like how to manage your classroom while still upholding equitable practices and inclusiveness for your students, something like that. 
It's a working title. Yeah, working title. Right. It'll be good though. So you've heard it, guys. If you're thinking about CI Midwest, I would highly encourage you to go. And you never know. I might show up and uh, do some more uh, CI Midwest takeaways via the podcast. Well, you know, if you do, I will I will buy you dinner. You will buy him. Well, you can almost count me in on that one. Come on. Um, so, John, it's been a fantastic conversation. And I want to thank you so much for your willingness to be part of this and talk about a topic that not many people want to talk about. Um, these hard conversations need to be had. And uh, I thank you for your willingness to have it with me. Thank you. I appreciate it. And you are listening to What in the World Language Podcast.